Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, this is Tim McIntosh with The Plays The Thing. Welcome to the final episode of William Shakespeare's Othello. I am here with Sarah Jane Bentley, who is a teacher at Eton in England. Sarah Jane, welcome back to the show. It's our final episode. Are you feeling happy, sad, relieved? How are you feeling? Good to be here, Tim. I'm um, just excited, I suppose, about answering these questions that listeners have sent in through Facebook. Sergeant, I have to tell you that ordinarily when we do this, David Kern, who's the host of Close Reads, does not really give us any heads up. He just finds the questions and he reads them on the air. And he, I think he enjoys watching us squirm a little bit <laughs> or listening to us squirm. But... I think is a testament to my, what, benevolence, my <laughs> kindness. <laughs> yeah, your, gra- your manifold mercies. <laughs> <laughs> we have discussed the questions that we're going to discuss off the air before we discuss them on the air. Um, Sarah Jim, before we start, have you seen any good theater lately? Lately, no. I uh, No, it's been a while. I was mostly over in the States this summer, so I didn't do my normal trips to, to the West End. Yeah, but, um, I'm going to go and see The Producers this weekend, which is a musical which the boys are putting on at school. So I'm going to see that. How, how are the productions at school? Are they, I mean, this is, maybe you shouldn't say, because if they're not, that's a, that's a loaded question, because maybe you have some students that listen to this. The, no, the school productions, I on, honestly can say are fabulous. We've got, really? a, we've got full working theatre, um, amazing support team of um, technicians, Oh, um, wow. Wow. We've got full-time um, people who build sets, do all the lighting, all that kind of stuff. Wow. So it's like a professional theater. That's great. Um, a lot of our actors go on and become um, famous actors in Hollywood. No kidding. Yeah. So it's like a real treat to see a play at school. Yeah. Does, do students go to Eton um, because they know it could set them up for a life in theater? Is there something about Eton that especially appeals to those students? 
I'm not sure, actually. I, I think quite often it's something they discover when they're here, mm-hmm. being in maybe a smaller production or something, mm-hmm. and they find a passion. But yeah, have you seen anything good at the theatre recently? No, I have not been to the theatre at all. I think the last play that I saw, I went to a Romeo and Juliet production in downtown Seattle that was highly recommended by another friend of mine who was an actor. And she told me kind of the conceit of this production of Romeo and Juliet. And the production was that Romeo was played by a deaf actor. It was extraordinary. It was absolutely extraordinary. What they did was they would have various actors who are not in the scene would follow Romeo. And so when he would say, let's say he was talking to Juliet, he would be signing to her. Right. And now I can't read sign language. Mm. So the person, the actor who is not like in the scene would be behind Romeo saying the words as he signed them. And it was so exceptionally beautiful and there's a moment i can't remember exactly where it was midway through the play we don't hear much from romeo at all like we hear some sounds from him and some words from him but there's a scene midway through and i again i don't remember exactly what it was where he romeo just lets out this like yell from his belly he's just overwhelmed by something and it kind of it stuns the audience because you're so used to him being signing. He's signing everything. Mm. And then when he lets out with this just... It's when he's banished, isn't it? After he's oh, I, I wonder if that's what it was. Yeah. I wonder if that's what it was. Oh, it was just delightful. It was just... Wow. It was... Yeah. It was really, really moving. And I think that my, that's one of the last plays that I saw, which is great because that kind of gets to jangle about in my memory for a while. Mm. Sarah Jane, let's talk Othello questions. Let's do it. First question. And I'm going to try to read. We really love kind of hearing from our listeners. So I'm going to include the names. And this name is, I just really like this name, Julie McIntosh (laughs) Ernest. I just really, it's got, I don't know, it's got a special ring to it. Uh, Julie asks, and there's no relation, by the way. Julie asks, what Christian themes are in Othello? That's a great one to kick off with. It's a massive question. Yeah. What Christian themes aren't in Othello? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Are there any themes that aren't Christian themes is another question. Um, I would recommend teachers uh, and parents who are really interested in this question. There are two great articles by Ralph Wood on the Theopolis Institute website called Biblical Illusion and the Meaning of Othello. Um, They're they're really worth reading. Um, But maybe we could start with looking at Othello. So I think one of the ideas is that Othello is Christ-like. That's something I've been discussing this week a little bit in lessons. Um, If we go right back to the beginning in Act 1, do you remember when the um, Brabantio's sort of guards come to get Othello because he's stolen Desdemona in the middle of the night? Right. And Othello says, put up your bright swords, lest the dew rust them. Mm. And it's exactly the same line that's used um, in the Bible, in the Gospels when they come to take Jesus from from Gethsemane. Yeah. Yeah. And just like Jesus, Othello, he kind of puts out his hands. He says, doesn't need to be any violence. My perfect soul shall manifest me rightly. 
says, mm. I'm mm. your guy, take me. And um, I think that's, that's an amazing moment, an amazing Christian theme, that fellow is like Christ. Also the fact that he comes like a thief in the night and takes Desdemona, mm. ride. And then at the end, he essentially is sacrificed alongside two thieves, Rodrigo. Oh, yeah. And Iago. Um, and that's kind of similar as well to Gomorrah. Yeah, yeah. So that was one idea. We also compared him to Job a bit. Um, another theme um, is the idea that the play perhaps puts forward this idea that we should walk by faith, not by sight. Mm. That the ocular proof is is insufficient, that our eyes will deceive us. Um, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, is what Jesus says to Thomas. And uh, I think that the play maybe plays around with that idea, perhaps. Yeah. What else is there? Well, what about ideas of freedom, freedom and liberty and, and redemption? So when we first meet Othello, he tells his story in the court to the Duke. And I get the impression that possibly at some point in his youth, he was enslaved. So he says, um, first of all, that he would not, I would not my unhoused free condition put into circumspection. Um, so he says, I wouldn't, I wouldn't get married to Desdemona. I wouldn't confine myself to some kind of domestic contract with were it not that she completely loves me and I love her. Mm. So his unhoused free condition, I think could refer to the idea that he wasn't always free. He says in his story that he was sold to slavery and that he had his redemption hence. Um, and I was linking this to the idea that scripture shows that we're all slaves bought with a price. And later in the play, Othello becomes a slave again. He says about Iago, uh, who is the demi-devil, why has he thus ensnared my soul and body? So I think that's an interesting Christian theme, slavery, bondage, and freedom. Yeah. That we're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to Christ, which of course is freedom. And then, yeah, what else was interesting? What about the idea of being... Um, a peacemaker, not a peacekeeper. Uh-huh. So Othello, Othello often goes out to make peace, which sometimes involves him having to get engaged in some kind of battle. So he's, yeah. he's going to fight the Turks initially. He comes out in the middle of the night to fight, to, to um, end the brawl that Cassio is having. Um, and he, he's quite courageous in that sense. Sergey, I have to tell you that phrase, peacemaker, not a peacekeeper, I was totally ignorant of that phrase until one of my former students, Sophia said it because hmm. she said it as something that she was kind of, she was working on within herself, which just right. number one, the, you know, the fact that she was like working on it in herself was admirable. But then I had never heard that phrase. And immediately I thought, Oh, that's wonderful. Cause yeah. that's the way that it ought to be. Hmm making not i mean like because the scriptures say making it's not peacekeeping it's peacemaking and yeah the world needs peace peace made it's not the resting state of the world to be in a state of peace right exactly yeah, yeah. Um, 
uh, and the tragedy shows that well that you have to have the the turbulence and then the tranquility yeah um there's also desdemona there are lots of christian themes surrounding her i think that she's a lot like the ideal woman in peter chapter three that she is um, adorned in the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Mm. And as you said last week, even when, even when Othello has murdered her and Amelia comes in and Desdemona could reveal... Reveal all. She doesn't. She, she uh, maintains the good reputation of her lord and husband. And, and so there's also another moment early on where she's a lot like... Um, Mary and Martha both mixed together, that she's doing the domestic chores, but she also stops to listen to the Christ-like visitor in the house. That's in Act 1, Scene 3. This, As you can tell, this is a question I loved and just (laughs) really spent a lot of time thinking about what different Christian themes and symbols there are. Um, You you kind of alluded to this at the beginning, but there's, it's um, the question, what Christian themes are in you know, this play or that play in Shakespeare, it's, it's a tangled question because the England of Shakespeare was so immersed in a long legacy of Christianity, you know, you know, I don't know about pervading the culture, but at least being strongly present in culture. And so we're just kind of assuming, and I think rightly assuming that Shakespeare's imagination was had been steeped in the Bible and the biblical stories and the habits of the church. So it, 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 teasing out, teasing out um, themes that were, that are non-Christian almost would be in some ways a little bit more of a fruitful exercise because, because the, his imagination has been so immersed in Christianity and also the classical world that it's hard to differentiate. It's, it's hard to say what themes are Christian because to me, oftentimes I'm just like, well, they, they kind of all seem like they're Christian in one way or another. Well, yeah. What about this idea that there are, that it's impossible to write a theme that isn't somehow part of the Bible story of the whole world. I, I don't think there is anything outside of that. Yeah. Because the Bible is about what human beings are like. I would push back on that and say, having just finished Odysseus, I think there are certain things. um, There's a certain vision of, I think that Homer's vision of some of Odysseus's actions Mm. namely the slaughtering of the servant girls at the end or sleeping with Calypso. I, I think that they are part of a vision of kind of like, I don't know, let's call it um, pagan heroism that I think Homer smiles upon. And I think you could kind of tease that out of the Odyssey and say, yeah, he's heralding something that um, was heralded before for Christianity uh, abolished such things or abolished such visions of heroism. So it's a little, so in, in the one hand, I can completely agree with you. Yeah. Everything, everything. If God created this world and it's, and it's functioning according to kind of like the psyches of 
men and women who are created and shaped by him, then everything about our actions and motivations in some way could be called Christian. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think we see certain things, especially in literature that kind of predates Christianity. It's easier to spot things that are celebrated that as a Christian, it's a lot tougher to celebrate those same things. In Odysseus I see what you mean. So uh, the the attitude to the way in which things are done, right? But if you, yeah. I mean, if you want stories of um, husbands being unfaithful or women who are temptresses, then there's plenty in the Old Testament that. Um, but again, to my point is that those stories are told. But would you call those? Um, oh, adultery, a Christian theme, or you know, you you would say. No, it shows up in the scriptures as something. The story is being told for purposes other than praise. Oh, really? Uh, no, I'd say it's absolutely a Christian theme because it's about it's uh, adultery is also about idolatry, and how the the true bride, the church, can ha, has been throughout history unfaithful, and so it's it's a kind of it's a a theme on a metaphorical level, as well as there being literal examples of it in scripture. Um, yeah, I don't know if, yeah, I, I just don't know if it's possible to write literature that can create something new, completely new. Right. That we haven't already encountered that scripture yeah. hasn't already covered. I don't yeah. think it's possible. I think that's fair. Mm. I think that's fair. But I, I see what you mean in terms of what people in terms of their values in society throughout history, people have held different values. Um, right, right. But morality hasn't changed. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about kind of how you, it, it, it's all about how you read the question that was sent to us. Like what, how, yeah, I suppose, what is a theme maybe? What is a theme? Yeah. yeah. And what counts as a Christian theme? Mm. Um. Anyway, I loved your answers. Let's let's go to the next. I've got question. loads more. <laughs> Sacrifice oh, really? was one. Damnation was another. Suffering was another. Um, there's obviously Iago as the tempter, the accuser, right? The liar, um, and then pride, servant leadership, marriage, murder, and the um, the warnings that the theme of what happens to you if you sell your soul for worldly gain uh-huh yago does and the way that rodrigo does thus do i ever make my fool my purse um but i think you know we could probably spend an hour or more talking about yeah. that <laughs> yeah, yeah, easily. lots and lots but it was yeah it's a really good question and I, I imagine you could teach the whole play for maybe a year to students just on that question yeah you probably could mm. next question from sally webb I hope I don't butcher this, Sally. Eilerson, E-I-L-E-R-S-E-N. Sally asks, so she watched, she listened to a podcast by the Folger Library. Um, for my money, the Folger series of like academic essays that accompany the Shakespeare plays, I love those. I've probably got 10 of them. And teachers who are wondering where they should invest if they're going to get a... Um, if they're going to get a book that supplements the text with academic essays or footnotes, et cetera, et cetera, for me, 
the Folger series is lovely. And they do a podcast. So uh, the Folger Library podcast did something on Othello and Blackface. And the question is, uh, here's what it is. It included a discussion of the theory that the handkerchief was black, dyed in a mummy, that ties it even more closely with Othello. Have you heard this theory before? Asked Sally. What do you think about it? And she includes a link in the podcast. And I will forward that link onto the uh, Facebook page when we're done here. So are you familiar with the theory, Sarah Jane? And well, I, I am now, thanks to Sally. Yeah. What Sally um, has really opened a whole new window on the play for me with this question. And um, I just want to kind of praise her as a fellow Shakespeare geek for, for <laughs> looking this up. But I did, I, I listened to the podcast and then I also read the, the professor from Lafayette University's essay, which apparently changed the way that people read the play. And he's called um, Professor Ian Smith. And the play is called, uh, the essay is called A Fellow's Black Handkerchief. And I, yeah, I really endorse people reading it because it's, it's an interesting take. But there are some things that um, perhaps we need to be aware of as we approach this question about the handkerchief. So, so, so Jane, what is the, can you give us the general theory of um, what is the blank handkerchief? How, how would that affect the performance of the play? Yeah, well, if I just briefly outline Ian Smith's argument, he is reading the play from a particular viewpoint, um, which suggests that white privilege, he believes in white privilege, has meant that we've been um, too quick to assume that the handkerchief is white and that this is... Um, a kind of cultural hegemony, if you like, um, which, okay, it's, it's one way of approaching the play and it, it does yield a, a lot of analysis. Um, and so he says that because in um, the Renaissance, actors who were playing black characters used to put black makeup on and also used to cover their skin with things like black velvet and black leather to show that their change in skin color, that the handkerchief takes on um, a metonymic representation, not of Desdemona's white body. I see. Spotted with red blood, but of Othello's body. And that when she's carrying a black handkerchief around, she's actually like carrying a little piece of him with her. And when she gives it to Cassio, even though it's misunderstood, mm. it still looks like she's giving part of Othello to Cassio is what it would look like. Yes, I suppose that is how it would look. Okay. And so okay. this, this reading that... Um, Professor Smith comes up with is completely new because previously critics had given a very neat and symbolically tight uh, picture of the handkerchief as representative of the wedding sheets of Desdemona, which then also become the, the scene of the murder and also of Desdemona's own body. Um, but Ian Smith completely refutes this and he gives he gives reasons for doing so. Now, I don't, as a mere school teacher, I don't want to, in kind of 10 minutes, completely um, undermine what, what has been, uh, obviously, years of research for him. But I did research this a bit, and I think I agree with him to an extent, but I, I have some so questions. Before you go, can I, can I, before you, like, issue your questions, did you find it compelling? Was his case that the handkerchief might have been in original productions been black. Yes. Does he make that case? Yes. 
and did you did you find that aspect of it compelling? I found it fascinating. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. Okay. I'm not sure if it's entirely convincing. Okay. So, um, I th- I think he's quite keen to push a particular reading because he wants to, not because he's willing to look at the play and what it says. So let's see what let's let the play read the play and see what it says. So the first time the handkerchief is mentioned. Um, well, the first time we see it then, um, Desdemona actually mops Othello's brow with it. He says, I have a pain upon my forehead here. Desdemona says, faith, that's with watching, twill away again, but let me bind it hard with this hour. It will be well. And, And Othello says, your napkin is too little. And he pushes it aside and she drops it. And that's the moment where she drops the handkerchief. And then Amelia picks it up. Mm. Um, So other things we learn about the handkerchief then. It was given to Othello's mother by an Egyptian who was a charmer and could almost read the thoughts of people. And the handkerchief comes with this magical charm that Othello's mother would use to subdue Othello's father. So it has this special magical power. And she's also told by the Egyptian charmer, if she loses the handkerchief or makes a gift of it, um, Othello's father would then hate her and look, look for new fancies. So you can see how that charm or curse is then revisited on Othello and Desdemona. Right, right. So that's really interesting. So the mother says, um, Othello says that the mother gives it to him on her deathbed and said, um, when my fate would have me wife to give it her, to give it to my wife, I did so and take heed on it, make it a darling, like your precious eye, to lose it or give it away with such perdition as nothing else could match. And, and then he gives Desdemona a description of the handkerchief. Tis true, there's magic in the web of it, a sibyl that hath numbered in the world the sun to cause 200 compasses in her prophetic fury sowed the work. The worms were hallowed that did breed the silk and it was dyed in mummy, which the skillful conserved of maidens' hearts. And Desdemona goes, oh, is that true? And he says, oh, yes. And Desdemona says, then I wish I'd never seen it. Mm. So we know some things about the handkerchief. It is um, charmed. Othello holds it in a superstitious reverence. It has the power to subdue Othello's father. It is made of silk, and it is dyed in something called mummy, which uh, was got from the hearts of maidens. Now, do you know anything about this, about mummy? No. Okay. Nothing. This was fascinating for me. I read all about it. Mummy was a special medicinal potion that people were obsessed with in um, the 1500s and the 1600s. And there was this huge trade in bodies of mummies between Alexandria and England. And... It was used for two things, mummy. It was used for dye in paint and as a medicine. So it has so much significance wow, yeah. when we think about it in the context of the handkerchief. Yeah. So in terms of medicinal properties, until the 18th century, it was being used as a potion to subdue epilepsy. So no kidding no kidding that was an interesting discovery so i'm really grateful to ian smith for this because i'd never have thought about right off his essay the thing that i think he might have got wrong 
is that he thinks that the colour mummy is black. Mm. Because mummy, the, the actual bit of dead corpses, was mixed with bitumen, which is black, and myrrh, which is um, a special spice associated with death. And it made this special potion. Othello, in fact, himself makes reference to myrrh in his final speech about the Arabian trees dropping their medicinable gum. Um, so although mummies were black and bitumen is black, the actual pigmentation for the paint that was made was red. Huh. And it was used for the colours of flesh in painting. Huh. And it was called um, mummy brown. So my theory is that the dipped, dyed colour of the handkerchief is actually referring to the red bits on the handkerchief. Because we're told that the handkerchief is spotted with strawberries. Oh, interesting. And I, my, my other question for Ian Smith would be, if the handkerchief is black, how would you see in the audience that it had red strawberries on it? It's Just practically speaking. It doesn't work theatrically. Okay, okay, wouldn't Ian Smith push back and say, it doesn't matter? Because we're told, you don't need to see it, because we see it's black, and the red spots might not show up for the audience, but we've just heard. There are red spots, there are strawberries on it. But it's ne- the handkerchief is never referred to as black either. So... Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I think fair enough if it was only once referred to as having red spots on it, but it's referred to several times. Um, the work in the handkerchief is referred to several times. So Amelia likes the work in it and says she's going to have it copied. So does Cassio. Says to Bianca, have the work taken out. So the idea is that, that, that there's something red and embroidered on the handkerchief. Yeah. The other argument he makes is that the handkerchief would be huge. This black handkerchief would be huge. But we've already heard Othello say to, to Desmona, your napkin is too little to mop my brow with. It's not big enough yeah. to tie around my head. Yeah. So that can't be right. If we look at what the Does he says, deal with that? Does Ian Smith deal with that? No. Huh. <laughs> but huh. I'm being pedantic. <laughs> um, and maybe, you know, maybe there's another essay he's written or something about it. But it's, what's really fascinating is then the image of the strawberry. So I had a look at this as well. Why strawberries? Why not just red spots? And strawberries um, were quite famous as an imagery of as imagery of um, perfection, and that symbolism was so powerful in the 1500s that strawberries were carved in churches on altarpieces and things as a kind of like a fruit of paradise. And there's a very famous painting by Hieronymus Bosch which you might have seen called The Garden of Earthly Delights. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there are people in it eating giant strawberries. Really? Yeah. Um, Now, that painting apparently was famous in its own day. And it was copied, um, copiously copied. So it's quite possible that there were copies of it in England and that Shakespeare might have seen one. The idea that Iago would have seen it, I think, is is quite... uh, a likely one, as Prince Philip of Spain had actually bought Hieronymus Bosch's painting and taken it to Spain. Iago is meant to be Santiago, the Spanish um, kind of more slayer. So we have on the handkerchief a reference to 
a fruit that moved from being a symbol of perfection to being a symbol of um, sexual temptation and infidelity, which makes sense. So if that image of the Garden of Delights in the Hieronymus Bosch painting was in the popular imagination, then it would have had a cultural significance um, for the audience. But, you know, I could sp probably spend a year little bit of research I did and I thought wow this is amazing wow there's so much so much going on in that either so, large or small it sounds like small yeah. piece of cloth there's exactly. a lot going on there so I agree with Ian Smith that it can't be a purely white handkerchief I think it must have red on it I don't think that black is the color of mummy I think it's actually like a reddy reddish color reddish yeah blue. yeah and I think it has double significance. It's, it's symbolic in terms of color, but also in that it is possibly a medicine for epilepsy and that maybe Othello's condition is hereditary. Right, right. Okay, that, that question of um, his epileptic fits, I think is a decent enough segue into our next question. That's, it's almost like you planned it that way. <laughs> Which we did not. <laughs> well, maybe a little bit. Uh, Lisette Ann asks... Well, first, uh, it's been wonderful to read Othello and the Odyssey at the same time. So those listeners who have not been kind of like paying attention to the other things that have been going on with Close Reads, the other podcast through Circe, we just are going to, we are going to do the Q&A for the Odyssey tomorrow. We're going to record that tomorrow. So I've been doing them side by side, side by side. And Lisette Ann apparently has been listening to both the Odyssey podcast and the Othello podcast at the same time. She said, I was thinking about how modern interpretations often mention Ulysses, which is kind of the Romanized name of Odysseus, as potentially having PTSD. My thoughts then jumped to Othello and how he reacted or overreacted. I have a heart condition, which has greatly affected my adrenaline mimicking PTSD. And made me think how Othello was a child soldier and has spent a lifetime in stressful situations. When the stress became too personal, it may have been too much for him. One of the symptoms of PTSD is losing body control. So what do you think about this? What do you think about the possibility that Othello, he has spent a lifetime in war, mm. um, he gets put into this extremely stressful situation, this highly... This, this situation about the woman that he loves more than maybe anything else in the world, is it possible that although Shakespeare wouldn't have called it PTSD, it's a recent nomenclature, that he had like kind of recognized the signs of what we call PTSD today, and that was part of Othello's character. Mm -hmm. That Othello was more prone to being vexed in the extreme. Yeah. Mm. It's a really interesting idea. And I think it's wonderful to see how um, readers have really inhabited the consciousness of Othello and uh, are giving him kind of psychological motives for things. Um, and that's a very popular way of, of reading character, I think, that sort of psychoanalytical approach. Um, and I think it's absolutely right, as, as Lisette asks, that there are weaknesses in Othello that Iago capitalizes on. So one thing about the PTSD, well, Iago tells us at one point that Othello 
is extremely calm under pressure. That he, Yago says, I have seen the cannon when it hath blown his ranks into the air and like the devil from his very arm puffed his own brother. And can he be angry? That it mm. takes so much for Othello to snap. And Othello at the end says um, that he's been wrought and vexed in the extreme. So I actually think Shakespeare maybe shows us that because Othello's been a child soldier from the age of seven, he's actually better equipped to deal with this kind of pressure. The weakness that Iago sees is um, right at the beginning of the play when Brabantio says, look to her more, if thou hast eyes to see, she has deceived her father and may thee. And this is what Iago plays on, is Othello's pride and insecurity, that, that he, he plays on the possibility that Desdemona might be unfaithful. And Iago says, so will I turn her virtue into pitch and out of her own goodness make the net that shall enmesh them all. So I think Iago's twisting and torturing of Othello is the reason why he um, becomes so irrational and the fit itself, I'm almost inclined to say we give, we're given clues that this might be hereditary, that his father was like this and his mother used the handkerchief to subdue him, possibly. And then the mummy links to the idea of right. a medicine that was used to, clear, to cure epilepsy. Um, so I don't know. If, if you could remove the epileptic fits from the play, um, it seems to me like Lisette's question might still stand because mm -hmm. of the kind of extreme response that Othello has to the jealousy, to supposedly Desdemona cheating on him. And, and to me, I agree with you. He, he, he has been trained in war and we have evidence that in the mouth of the cannon, he is remarkably brave and unflappable. Mm -hmm. Now I'm, I'm going to like sound like I know more about <clears throat> PTSD than I do. My impression of the effects of PTSD, it's not that they would not affect a soldier on the battlefield, but my understanding is they seem to be more impactful when a soldier is away from a warlike setting, when he's trying to return to um, what we would call normal everyday life. But isn't Cyprus, that Cyprus is a war warlike setting. But the action of the play is to some degree secluded from that warlike setting. It's almost all domestic. We see glimpses of that a battle has happened there, kind of offset but almost all of the action just happens in essence at home, right? Yeah, I suppose what's coloring my judgment there is that the, the production I've seen, the, the Hitner production with Adrian Lester as Othello is set in a barracks in Cyprus. I see, I see. wearing military fatigues all the time. Right. Completely, it's, it's the, the world of war completely. So that's what yeah. I'm in my head. So yeah, no, I, I see what you mean. You, don't, you wouldn't necessarily have to set it like that. Yeah. Right. That's a creative setting, and, it, and I'm, I'm sure that it absolutely works. But in my reading of it, I read it all as it happens in, I mean, much of it happens in bedrooms. The conversation between Desdemona and her serving woman happens in a bedroom. The final scene, which is the, I mean, it's what, 30 minutes long, 
happens in Othello's bedroom. So I, I, I'm, I am sympathetic with the idea that, that Shakespeare, though he wouldn't have called it PTSD, still knew that the effects of war upon a man were significant. And mm. again, this is, this is an, this is like amateur hour PTSD. If there's, if there's a listener who is more familiar with PTSD, please correct me on Facebook. But my, my, it seems to me that the effects of PTSD seem to really come home at home. Mm. That a soldier can kind of limp through or sort of, I don't know, like bracket in some way, some of the symptoms of PTSD while still near the battlefield, but they really start affecting when there's an attempt to return to everyday life. Yeah. I remember attending a lecture on this. Oh, yeah. About the origins of PTSD and how men uh, respond under stress. And I remember that it was, it was a few years ago, but it's coming back to me, that in the Renaissance, there was a concept of such a thing as PTSD, but it obviously wasn't called that. And it was closely associated with melancholy and morosity. Huh. And, and so it was seen as a kind of an origin for maybe something more like melancholia and depression. But there are lots of, there are lots of great essays about the history of melancholy. And I, I'm sure there would be things in there um, linking it to PTSD. Um, and I know our understanding of PTSD now is different, but Othello, so in the contemporary idea of that kind of PTSD um, disorder, Othello would be a melancholy character, I think, and he doesn't come across as melancholy. He comes across as more proactive in a sense, in that he has yeah. something strategic to solve yeah. the problem. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. Let's do, so we've got two more questions. Um, the next one, Sarah Jane, is from Al Landers. What do you think was the main thing driving Othello to go through with killing De Desdemona? Was it pride and security? Maybe due to her being different or a combination of things, whatever it was. It must have been an incredibly strong force within him. It sounded to me like he really wanted to believe that Desdemona was faithful, but maybe the risk of her being unfaithful was just too great for him to overlook as he wished. Thank you, Al. What do you think was the main thing driving Othello? This is a great question. This is the kind of question you can set as an essay question to a student, isn't it? And they can write a paragraph on all the different aspects of Othello's temptation. Um, what would be the three main things? I think I'd say um, driving Othello, well, at Iago's attack on his pride, jealousy, Othello is a jealous husband, which is virtuous, but Iago capitalizes on that and says, trifles light as air are to the jealous confirmations strong as proofs of holy writ. So that drives him. Uh, then he also has a strong sense of justice, which we discussed at length in, in Act 5 about how that becomes warped. But his speech goes, it, it is the cause. It is the cause, my soul. Let me not name it to you. You chased stars. It is the cause. Yet I'll not shed her blood nor scar that whiter skin of hers than snow and smooth as monumental alabaster. Yet she must die, mm. else she'll betray more men. And so there's that driving him, his sense of mm -hmm. justice. Mm -hmm. He has to. 
And last of all, I'd say that the the tragic conventions of the play are designed in such a way that this has to happen. The action, <laughs> the action climax is in him killing his bride, which goes back to the idea at the beginning that we discussed that um, Mars and Venus clash. Mars never takes his armor off. He's supposed to surrender to Venus. He never does. Um, and so the tragic conventions mean that he he has he has to commit this murder at the end. Yeah, even when he doesn't want to. But yeah, yeah. How, how would you answer that question? I, I answer the same way. I mean, the kind of surface cause is jealousy. But what makes him? I'm reading Al's question is what makes him so uh, susceptible to that jealousy? And I yeah, I think the reasons you just articulated. I have nothing profound to add on top of those. Those are great. Good one to write an essay about, probably. Yeah, for sure, for sure. That'd be a great one to assign to a yeah to a high school class. Yeah. Hey, last question. Wow, we've been really efficient with these. We have. I'm impressed with us. This one comes from a young man named Jake, who is apparently one of your students at Eton. It's a great question. Can Renaissance tragedies like Othello? induce the same levels of catharsis to contemporary audience as it may have done to audiences in the 17th century? That's a nice question, Jake. Yeah. He wants both of us to answer. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, um, what are your first thoughts about this, Tim, about catharsis and whether we have a different response now in the 21st century than the audience would have in the 17th? So the background is we talked about um, Aristotle's idea that the purpose of of theater is to basically purge excess emotions. And that word catharsis, I think, comes from the Greek. It's and the word is very much like the word our word catharsis. It's almost a direct tie. Um, do we experience that same? Do we experience that thing that Aristotle describes today with Renaissance tragedies in a, it took to the same power and degree that a Renaissance audience would, the same degree that a Renaissance audience would? That's the question, right, Sarah Jane? Mm. If I rearticulated it well enough. Um, <laughs> it's such a big question. I, it's a big question. My initial answer is no, and then I'm going to follow it up and say yes. So no, in this way, I'm going to piggyback on what you said about about the handkerchief. If Shakespeare's audience, and I'm just going to plug in Shakespeare's audience for a Renaissance audience, knows all of this, or at least has some sort of like cultural there's a cultural sort of echo for them about that handkerchief. And when they see the handkerchief pulled out and they hear these different allusions, those allusions to the meaning kind of tied to the handkerchief, I think are probably more potent and immediate to them than they would be to you and me. We have to go do research about the handkerchief in order to understand what its meaning is. And then we paste that meaning onto the handkerchief. 
But if those meanings are a little bit more ready at hand, then I think that their impact, the emotional impact of them on that audience is going to be, it's going to be stronger, I think. So that's my answer. That's why I would say, no, there's something about the immediacy of Shakespeare's play, the, the, the immediacy of meanings within Shakespeare's play, I think would probably be more powerful to someone living in his day than they would to our day. Now I'm going to say the opposite. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan of well-done updatings of Shakespeare. Um, I like seeing, like, Sarah Jane, you've talked about the production of Othello that you saw done in an army barracks mm-hmm. with contemporary army military fatigues. I love those when they're done well because they can enhance the meaning of the play even though we're separated from the play by 400 years it can kind of make it more immediate to us and help us to kind of like feel the power of the play and the meaning of the play in a way that hopefully is a little bit more like what it felt like to a renaissance audience so i'm going to talk it at both sides of my mouth the answer to jake is no I don't think that we can be brought to the same level of catharsis because we are farther away from it. But yes, because we have capacities through great stage work, great acting, uh, great directing to feel the immediacy of a play, even though we were separated from the source text by 400 years. Sarah Jim, what do you think? I'm with you. I'll also give a double-edged answer. I absolutely agree with you. I think that catharsis, as you said, it's not a straightforward idea. Um, I mean, does it happen on the stage among the actors? Does it happen in the audience? The idea is that we leave the theatre feeling purged, cleansed of pity and terror. But in fact, as we both experienced at the end of Othello, you actually feel more as if you've had pity and terror evoked and emotions stirred up. Um, And Jake's question is specifically about, you know, can we measure the levels (laughs) of catharsis? I think quantifying it is, is difficult. I can give a qualitative answer. Um, I think ultimately, yes, it can, that a 21st century audience can have the same kind of response as a a 17th century audience because, well, I firmly believe people don't really change. We can't really say that, you know, in 2019, we're more sophisticated now in terms of our emotions. We're not. People are the same. Um, So... I don't think we'd still be performing Othello if it, if it wasn't possible for us to experience it as a tragedy. Um, we still find it problematic and upsetting that Othello has murdered his innocent wife. In fact, my husband <laughs> said, my husband said, oh, any play where a husband kills his wife is cathartic. <laughs> oh, it's awful. It's awful. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, he's married to me, so... <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we still feel uh, pity for Amelia and Desdemona. We get a sense of injustice. We mourn for them. Um, and so I, I think there are some things which are universal about the human condition that don't change, which means we respond in the same way to a, a fallen man, a broken man, and a hero. But I also think that, you know, let's take it to the extreme. Let's push it to the extreme. In the 21st century, if people do change and if morality does change, then how about this for a response to the play? Well, um, you'd have to probably walk out at the moment where Othello strikes Desdemona in the face. Right. Uh, so you might not even get to the end of the play. 
because you'd be outraged by that. Um, and I, I'm just generalizing here what a kind of very different reading would be. Um, yeah. If morality changes, then Othello's jealousy is, isn't in any way understandable because all he's doing, right, is, is limiting Desdemona's free sexual desire. So ha- ha- adultery can't be wrong. Why should he um, try and prevent her from having sex with Cassio? She should be able to do whatever she wants, shouldn't she? So that would change our response to the play. Um, maybe we should really, the person we should mourn should be Iago because uh, he's this brilliant deceiver and um, his ability to lie and deceive people is something that should be perhaps celebrated rather than um, criticized at the end of the play. So if, if we really believe that morality changes and that people change, it completely fails as a tragedy. You can't really have it as a, a tragedy at all, I think. Um, if we look at Desdemona, and as we said, her, her final response to Othello is one of absolute submission. Uh, she can't be celebrated then as a feminist heroine because she's, she isn't speaking out against the oppression that she's experienced. Mm. She's pathetic. She's in fact enabling it, even after yeah. she's, she's strangled, she's enabling it. Yeah. So in, the, in that extreme way, um, you could say, well, if it's true that people change and morality changes, then you can't even watch Othello in the 21st century and get anything from it in terms of a tragedy because it, it just it doesn't work. So I think there has to be some universal things that, um, that we all agree are good and bad and that makes, make us feel um, happy, sad, vindicated, mournful. Right, right. Um, and then I, just to, to end on a more kind of positive and uplifting note, I think in 2019 perhaps, perhaps we are a more sympathetic audience now that we have, we have no issue, hopefully, with the idea that an African or a, an Arabic hero can be as of higher status as a character such as Hamlet or Macbeth or whatever. Right. It makes right. no difference where they're from. Uh, it makes no difference if the if main character is a, a king or not because we're, we're quite accustomed to the idea of um, domestic tragedy and that um, the fall of a great man is just as moving as the fall of the everyday man. Uh-huh. Um, so we don't really question his status. We don't really question his origins, perhaps. And um, as much as as much as perhaps a Renaissance may, audience, maybe yeah, maybe we're we're a bit more a bit more sympathetic and open in our views now in a way that perhaps Shakespeare's audience wouldn't have been. I, I don't know yeah. it's speculation, but essentially that's my answer in a convoluted way. People still experience it as a tragedy, I think, in some ways, and perhaps there are some cultural shifts that that make it slightly different, but ultimately. Yes, it can evoke the same kind of cathartic response as it could. Maybe, maybe the next time that we have you on the plays, the thing you can tell us if uh, Jake was satisfied by, by your <laughs> <our> answers. <Yeah. laughs> I hope that was helpful to you, Jake. <laughs> so, listen, let's um, let's put a bow on it. We have answered the questions that were submitted to us to the best of our abilities. Um, and we've reached the end of Othello. Congratulations, Sarah Jane. Well, that was quite, um, quite a debut. 
<laughs> that was it was quite a debut. Really fun. <laughs> can you can you think back to like our first episode is um doing five ep- you know now you've done five episodes is being on the place the thing anything like what you imagined it was going to be like? I don't know if I'd imagined it to be like anything. I think yeah. I think the first time I spoke to you and David I probably was the first time ever I'd ever recorded a podcast and that was quite daunting (laughs) and um I hope that it's just like this really interesting ongoing conversation that's happening all over Circe and all over the web and that people people are kind of listening and having more conversations about fellow and stuff and yeah I don't know I don't feel like so much under pressure now You felt a lot of pressure at the beginning. I completely self-generated, I'm sure. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure having you on. And I'm going to say thanks, everybody else, for joining us. It has been so much fun. And stay tuned for the next The Plays The Thing episode. We are going to be determining that very soon. And I'm sure we'll start putting it out there on the web what the next play is going to be. So we hope you join us for that. Meanwhile... For Sarah Jane, for the rest of the Circe Institute, thanks for joining us for Othello on The Plays the Thing. Mm-hmm.